Well, turn with me, if you would, today to Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to continue in this story of God, right? A little reminder as we begin, the Bible is not a rule book. It is not a truth dispensary or a weapon to bully people into belief. It is first and foremost a story. It is the story of God. The adventure story of a young hero sent to rescue from a far country to win back his treasure. It is a love story of a prince sent to rescue the one he loves. It is the most wonderful of fairy tales come true. And while the Bible does have some rules in it, and it certainly shows us how life works best, and without a doubt it reveals the truth to us, the Bible is not mainly about you and what you should be doing. The Bible is about God and what God has done. So Genesis 12, you will notice, if you can count, I skipped 11 chapters. Did you notice that? I skipped the fall, Adam and Eve and that treacherous snake. I skipped the great flood and Noah, favorite Bible story of children everywhere, in spite of hordes of people drowning. Everybody loves it because there's a giraffe, right? Um, I even skipped the Tower of Babel, how rude of me. But listen, Genesis is a long book, and if we're going to get to it before he kicks me out of the pulpit, we got to keep buzzing along, okay? So we're going to chapter 12 today. And while chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis are brimming with beauty, like God creating the world, and it's great, uh, by chapter 3, things get a little ugly, don't they? Adam and Eve uh, go against God's good plan, and they accept the lie that God's intentions towards them are anything but love. And so sin and death enter creation, and it's pretty much a quick downhill slide for humanity from that point on, right? Chapter 3, and then we get on to Cain murdering his brother Abel, and humankind descends into wickedness and depravity, and so, oh, God sends the great flood to cleanse all of humanity, right? And Noah and his family are saved, so clean slate for humankind for about 18 verses, And then we find Noah sloshed in a cave, completely drunk. His son walks in. Everything gets awkward because Noah is not fully dressed. And from then on, we get the Canaanites. And we get sin and sin and sin. By chapter 11, we're to Tower of Babel, where humankind is creating this beautiful tower, right? An endeavor to reach the heavens, to live as empowered, self-sufficient creations, and they fail. Once again, languages are mixed up and people are spread out all over the world. And so that is where we find ourselves today in in Genesis chapter 12. The story takes us to the descendant of Shem, one of Noah's sons, to the generation of a guy named Abram and his wife Sarai. And Genesis 11.30 pretty much lays out the situation pretty starkly. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. And that about sums it up. It sums it up, not just for Sarai and Abram, but for all of creation, for all of humankind at this point. Because it took about 11 chapters for humankind to rebel so thoroughly, so completely, that we hit a dead end with no viable future, okay? 11 chapters full of deceit and wickedness and murder and every kind of abuse and pride and idolatry. Humankind, we failed to live into our vocation. We failed to join God's good creative work in the world. And so instead, we wreak havoc and we create chaos, right? Where are we supposed to go from there? 
the Tower of Babel, what was supposed to be this symbol of human achievement and development, was an exercise in futility and essentially an idolatrous quest to displace God from the throne. And so here we sit in chapter 11 at a dead end, barren, no viable future for humankind other than the weak, pale imitations of life that we try to make for ourselves. There is nothing new under the sun, is there? The barren situation that I've just described from scripture is just as relevant today as it was back then. How many of us have found ourselves at dead ends with our backs against the wall, uncertain of the path forward. And I'm going to go ahead and uh, quote or, you know, refer to what Tommy said earlier today. If you have children, you should just go ahead and raise your hands right now because it is really hard to raise little humans. And I, for one, feel like I'm failing at least twice a day, usually three, but at least twice, right? Uh, and I wonder if I hit a, I've hit a dead end when I've blown it again or I've lost my temper or I have failed to embody Christ-likeness for my very first parishioners, my children, right? Or in our marriages, our significant relationships. Has anyone ever felt like they have hit a dead end there? Tommy and I have been there. Moments where you could not see a way forward out of a conflict. You could not see a way to forgive that last hurt that was inflicted upon you. It's a dead end. What are we supposed to do from there? It is utterly barren. Now, some of us have experienced physical barrenness, the inability to bear children, and there are few pains deeper than the pain of barrenness, and we don't talk about it. And it can feel like there is no future. Despair settles in. But barrenness can take many forms, can it not? That feeling that nothing, no life could possibly emerge from this dusty, dry, desolate ground of our lives. Spiritual dryness, emotional fatigue, creative exhaustion, barrenness. And humankind, we have a couple of ways we like to deal with the human situation, don't we? Two different ways, I like to say. The, the Babel way and the Elijah way. Now, the Babel way, they built the tower, right? The Babel way are those people who are so driven by their pride, by their utter assurance that they can make a way for themselves, that they could construct a future on their own. It's arrogant humanism of our day. The Babel way that says we have all we need in and of ourselves to make a future for us and for creation. We are the start. We are the finish. We are the future makers. It's the Babel way of handling the human condition, the way of pride. But on the flip side, there's the Elijah way. Do you remember Elijah, the God's, God's prophet? And he had just had this great victory, but then he's being chased like a creature of prey out into the wilderness. And he finds himself under a broom tree praying for death because he's overcome by despair. And so the Elijah way of dealing with the human condition is convinced that the current situation of pain, of oppression, of brokenness and evil is permanent. It is forever, and there are no powers in heaven or on earth that can save. Now, neither response, the babble prideful way or the despair Elijah way, are appropriate because it assumes that the world and its movement and its success and its progress all hinge on us, right, for good or for ill. And so it assumes that we are the source, 
we are the solution to the barrenness. We are the way out of dead ends. It assumes that we are the future makers, falsely. And both ways of these thinking are false, ineffective, and frankly, idolatrous. And so it is into this barren and futureless situation that God speaks. God extends a call. God makes an unexpected promise that changes everything. So let's read Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who blesses, the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife, Sarai, and his brother's son, Lot, and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, the oak of Moreh. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To you and your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, and he appeared to him, who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country and on to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages towards the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Out of the blue. Out of the blue to this unremarkable couple, God speaks. God speaks words of hope, full of what, uh, let's be honest for a second, are some pretty outlandish promises, right? He promises to make a childless, landless couple into a nation, a great nation. Two things which require both children, and land. Now, I don't feel like I need to point out to you there are a couple hiccups in God's plan. Do you see? There are no children. There are no land. No lands to be had. And so Abraham and Sarai are the least qualified people for this promise. They have no children. They have no prospects. They have no land to speak of. And God has spoken these words of real newness. Not of patching up a broken situation, but real newness, something totally new, not a salvaged version of their current situation, but newness. And through it all, God pledges to be with them. Real presence, real faithfulness, real newness. Now, real newness, something utterly new, it's kind of shocking. Because we are more, at least maybe in our family, I don't know, can't speak for you, but we're more slap some paint on the old version and call it good kind of people, right? Uh, because real newness is hard. It requires completely surrendering the old to make room for the new, right? Real newness requires us to acknowledge the failure of the past, which I don't like to do. And it calls us to accept the newness that only God can give. Newness in our families, newness in our relationships, newness in our job, in our emotional well-being, in our spiritual journey. Real newness. But you look at the story and you got to ask, why them? Why Abram and Sarai? Uh, why are they the beneficiaries and stewards of this remarkable newness? Why? Because there is not a single thing going for them. 
They are unimpressive. They are unremarkable. They have literally no potential for the future. They are pockets turned inside out kind of broke, barren at a dead end. Why? Because that's the kind of God our God is. Taking the humble and doing extraordinary things. Taking our nothing and making it everything. In the story of Abram and Sarah, we see God's resolve, his unshakable commitment to create a community, an alternative community in the midst of creation gone awry, okay? A community that will ultimately embody God's purposes for creation. See, the thing is, is when we live in ways that are contrary to God's purposes for creation and call it freedom, we become less and less human. Those crazy folks building the tower, reaching to heaven through their own strength and determination and unbridled pride, they became less and less human and more prone to wickedness and depravity, more and more prone to abuse and violence. And so too, when we live in ways contrary to God's purposes for us, we too become less and less human. When we take advantage of the weak to serve ourselves, we become less human. When we feed a critical spirit and when we abuse those around us, we become less human. When we refuse to forgive and let our wounds fester and bubble in us, which makes us really pleasant people, we too become less human. When we are dishonest with others and ourselves, we become less human. When we are selfish and greedy, we become less human. When we show no restraint, and we let our self-indulgent vices drive us to gluttony and addiction, we become less human. We become less able to live into our calling to be children of God. We handicap ourselves by feeding our selfish, sinful natures and starving the image of God within us instead. But God is kind, and our failings are not fatal. And so Abram and Sarah, a couple chosen not based on any merit of their own, but on the grace and the faithfulness of God, are chosen to create a family, a family to embody the God way of living. And through this family, God wanted to display his larger purposes, his purposes for all of creation, of restoration and of rec recreation in a creation that had gone off the rails in 11 chapters. Through this family, God wants to demonstrate his undying, unwavering commitment to bring humankind back to God. And we say, amen. Do we not? It sounds so good. God's steadfast, dogged commitment to us and to all of creation. It sounds so great. But it is, in fact, a direct affront to the human way of doing things to the Babel way, to the Elijah way, to the route of human pride, I can do it myself, and to the way of human despair, oh, all is lost, no one can help me. God's commitment to us and his way of doing things actually requires something of us. It demands that we lay aside that human pride that says, I can make a future for myself. 
It requires that we lay aside that human despair. There is no hope. I have abandoned all hope. I will just wait for death when God will make it all right. Right? There is no place for pride or despair in the story of God because we are not the future makers. God alone is the future maker, and he calls us to engage his promise. How? Through faith. And if I had a bright sign right now, I would say, churchy word alert, churchy word alert, (laughs) faith. Because I think we can safely guesstimate that about 80% of all Christian worship songs have the word faith in it. Uh, It's also an excellent greeting card, Christian meme, and t-shirt fodder. Just have faith. Just believe. Just hope for the best. Just be really optimistic and try to slap some Jesus language on it. (laughs) Typically, faith is understood to be this very passive, very low investment behavior. Just believe. Just affirm something in your head. That is not biblical faith. Not even a little bit. Because biblical faith, is rejecting pride and despair and instead throwing yourself so completely on the trustworthy, faithful character of God, knowing that God is on the move, and so should I be on the move. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, the author says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he set out not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, the future maker. By faith, he received power of procreation, even though he was too old. And Sarah herself was barren because he considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born as many as stars of the heavens and innumerable as grains of sand by the shore. By faith, Abram acted in trust. By faith, Abram and Sarah packed their bags and left the country and their kindred for the land that God would show them. Faith. It is not a fingers crossed, hope for the best nonsense word. It is a call to active, daring trust in the faithfulness of God. With shoes laced up and ready to roll. Abram and Sarah, they saw their dead and barrenness, their futureless life crystal clear. They knew they had no future. And they had a choice to make, right? They could live for the promise completely to be responsive and receptive to God's call. They could disengage from their present hopeless situation and walk to the promise, right? Or they could reject the promise. They could live against it and they could cling to what they had with a white knuckle grip, their present ordering of life, that familiar, right? And the text tells us that Abram and Sarai chose to fully embrace the promise, to disengage from their current circumstances and walk out into the wilderness of faith. And as we read earlier in the service, when Tom read from Romans, they placed their faith fully in God, the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist, hoping 
against hope. Abram believed that he would become the father of many nations according to what was said. Hoping against hope. Faith in the God who gives life from the dead, surrounded by death, by barrenness, by a non-existent blank future. Abram and Sarai hoped against hope. Not because they were just really optimistic folks, but because they were willing to lay, lay all on the line based on the word of God. Based on this one who can call into existence things that do not exist. They chose the way of the promise. It seems like a duh moment, doesn't it? To choose the way of the promise. Like what did Abram and Sarah really have to lose? But keep in mind, to choose the way of the promise is to shut the door completely on the past, the old way of doing things. To embrace the promise is to abandon pride, I can do it myself, or also to abandon despair, the there is no hope of anyone doing this, so I just give up. We have to abandon both and go all in for God's way of doing things. Both pride and despair are out of bounds when you trust the promise of the future maker God. To embrace the promise of God is to release and abandon plan B and C and D, if you are like me. Now, Tommy and I are into this really extensively long, drawn-out basement project, and I have to do all the painting because I have no discernible skills, so he just makes me paint everything, and it takes forever. And so I listen to podcasts and do whatever, and so I was listening to this, like, social sciences podcast, and it was talking about plan B this whole concept of having an alternative plan for your future, right? And they were doing these interviews of these people about their plans, like, what if this job doesn't work out? Do you have a plan B? Like, oh, if you get your degree, you don't get a job. Do you have a plan B? And they walked up to this couple, a man and a woman, and they were planning to move together to another country and get jobs and whatever, get married. And they asked the woman, so if it doesn't work out with this guy, do you have a plan B? Awkward, right? And she said, yes. She said, oh, yeah, I could, there's a couple other guys I could make a future with. Yeah, no big. And this poor guy, right? And all I could think was, you are clearly not all in, my friend. I would reevaluate re your plan here. Because the feeling is, is that if you have a less than 100% commitment to something, you're holding back, right? And the study, the social study, found that people who didn't even just, didn't just make a plan B, but who actually just thought about a plan B, were less likely to achieve the goal they were striving for. Isn't that fascinating? You are more likely to accomplish your goal if you cut all ties to alternative routes. It's a proven fact. To truly receive and live into the promise of God, to experience newness in our lives, we have to, like Abraham, cut ties with the past. We have to cut ties with our former way of doing things. We have to abandon plan B. Because like Abraham, we need to pack our bags and leave the old country and our kinsmen behind. And only then, only when we have shut the alternative doors completely can we fully open the door to faith to real newness and we can trust that when it comes to newness 
God goes big. God holds nothing back. Creation out of nothing, newness on a grand scale, giving life to the dead, impossible newness, newness against all counterindications. Justification, newness in our broken, sin-sick hearts. In God, newness abounds. In God, newness abounds. And God seems to specialize in lost causes. And like Abram and Sarai, we are invited into that newness, into that real newness, that life from the dead, calling things into existence that didn't even exist type newness. It is a call extended to us to break with the present way of doing things, the human way of handling our life, to abandon pride and despair. Babel or Elijah under a tree, both are idolatrous whether it be self-sufficiency or hopeless despair, we must break with the way of doing our life in order to walk into the promise that is made by God, the future maker. We must relinquish our white-knuckle grip on the present. That broken but familiar way of doing things and embrace the promise, shutting the door on plan be. With Abram and Sarah, it seems so obvious, right? Choose the promise! Choose the promise! If it was a game show, everyone would be cheering. Choose the promise! Choose the promise! There's nothing for you in her. Get on out! But it's not so easy for us. It is not so black and white because we grimly cling to the present way of doing things because it's what we know. But we got skin in this game. It is not so easy to go to the land that God is showing you, whatever that might mean. It is not so easy to recommit to reconciling a relationship and trust God to breathe newness into your marriage. It is not so easy to cut ties with those toxic friends that are pulling your heart away from Jesus. It is not so easy to lay down the bottle or the fork or whatever it is you use to cope, to be okay, and trust that God's going to be enough. It's not easy. And so the difficult question we have to ask today, do I really want freedom from barrenness and dead ends? Do I really? Because it's going to hurt. We must ask What must I relinquish to fully embrace the promise of God, the good future maker? We must relinquish pride, right? We must abandon the notion that we can fix ourselves and creation by our lonesome. We must reject the idea that all we have, that all we need to build a future for ourselves and our family is within us. That is American, but it is not Christian But we must also relinquish despair. We must reject the hopelessness that seeps into our bones. That all-consuming fear that our failure or the failure of the ones we love is fatal. We must reject the desolation that threatens to suck the life from our very lungs, whispering in our ear, 
It's hopeless. There's no way out. We must instead join Sarai, join Abram in this radical trust, in this God who gives life to the dead, who calls into existence things that do not exist, hoping against hope. We must shut the door on plan B because God, the future maker, is at work. So I ask, where in your life do you desperately need to radically hope against hope? What doors do you need to shut to fully embrace God's good promise and God's way of living? Where do you need to radically break with the present to embrace the good future that God is creating for us? in order that we might bless the world. It is not an easy call, and I do not extend it flippantly. Because we don't always see that which is promised, do we? Sometimes there seems to be a great disparity between what is and what has been promised. But we cling to faith in the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen, with shoes on our feet, ready to respond in obedience to that which God calls us. And so as God walked with Abram and Sarai into the unknown, so too will God walk with us, persistently present, ever faithful, as we walk into the good future that God has for us, for all of creation, if we will only trust the promise. May it be. Lord, we thank you that you are Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord, we acknowledge the temptation is great to go the way of Babel, the way that says we can fix this. We can do it. We are the future maker. And sometimes it is so tempting to give into despair that says there is no hope and there is no salvation on heaven or earth. I give And Lord, today we confess them both. We lay them at your feet and say, we want to trust the promise. The promise that says you are making a way. You are the good future maker for us and for all of creation. And we throw ourselves fully onto your promise. We trust that you are on the move even when we can't see it. We trust that you are at work, even when we can't sense it in our hearts. Would you give us the courage to trust? Not as some Christian slap slogan, but to really faith, to really trust, throwing ourselves onto your faithful character trusting that you are the God that brings life to the dead. You are the God that calls things into existence that do not exist. And so we hope against hope that you will do what you have promised. And as we obey, as we learn to trust, Lord, would you shape us into the image of your son and help us to embody your way in the world.
that we might be a blessing to our families, to our church, to our community, and to the ends of the earth as we partner with you in your good work in the world. We trust you are God with us. Amen. Beloved, Christ Church, may you go from this place and walk fully into the promise. Shut the door on plan B. And trust that God is with you. He is making a good future. Go in action and go in peace. You are dismissed.